0: Welcome to Scope of Practice, a podcast that opens a window for an inside look at different practice groups and the lives of attorneys in those groups here at Ropes & Gray. I'm Yoni Levy, an associate in our asset management group based in Boston. On this episode, I'm joined by Nell Etheridge, a seventh year in our Capital Solutions and Private Credit Group, and by Brian Klappow, a fourth year in our Capital Solutions and Private Credit Group, both based in New York. Hi, Nell. Hi, Brian. How are you? Thanks for having us. Hey, Yoni. I'm good. I'm very excited. I'm, I'm very excited to, uh, to hear more about your practice group and, and the work that you do at the firm. Uh, I, I typically open most episodes by explaining that I'm somewhat familiar with the practice group already since I do quite a bit of work with it, whether it be one of the other asset management groups that we've talked to so far or tax and benefits. But I have to say, I haven't had the privilege of doing uh, a ton of work with the Capital Solutions and Private Credit Group. Um, so I'm, I'm thrilled to hear more about, you know, who you are, how you got into this practice area, and, and what this practice area really means. Um, maybe let's start with that. What what is it that you do in your practice area, and I'll throw it out to either of you to answer.
1: So I can start. So our practice group is, um, you know, interesting. I think at Ropes and in general, because it combines debt pieces and also equity sides. So we have lawyers from both sides working together, which, in my experience, uh, is not a common uh, trait of a group. Um, and So we typically focus on, at least from my side, uh, you know, direct lending, but with a skew towards distressed uh, borrowers and distressed assets. And uh, because the deals tend to deal with uh, distressed borrowers, there's often an equity component uh, into the debt. So our clients will be lending money to a company, but um, because of the risk inherent in doing so, because the company is distressed, they will also often get some sort of equity kicker. And so that's where Brian comes in into our practice. And so, you know, I think our group kind of runs the gamut of traditional finance, but with a a skew towards the stress, companies going into bankruptcy, coming out of bankruptcy. And that, I think, is what separates us from the more traditional finance group.
2: And then I can cover a little bit of the the equity side. So uh, my practice on on the equity side is a little uh, wide ranging in that we We kind of advise private investment firms, corporations, financial institutions on the corporate equity side of of restructurings and reorganizations in the U.S. and abroad. Um, So we'll handle certain documents such as backstop agreements, asset purchase agreements, and the go-forward governance of of certain distressed companies. Um, Like Nell said, we'll handle the equity component of of companies that are are looking to take on either new debt or, or rescue financing components. We'll do some M&A private equity type investments. Um, we'll assist with financing arrangements, securities law compliance, corporate governance. Um, it, it pretty much runs the gamut of, of things you see on the equity side of transactions. Yeah, interesting. Thank you both.
0: Uh, m- maybe you can peel back a layer for us for those of us who might not be as familiar with the practice area. So like set the scene on and who it is that comes to you, what they're looking to do, and then how do the various pieces fit together?
1: Sure. So I think just stepping back as it fits into the larger practice areas, our uh, traditional finance group, if you will, is predominantly borrower side. So our clients are the private equity firms or the companies that are borrowing the money. Our group is a little different in that our typical client is actually the lender. Um, Our lenders tend to be private equity firms. Um, We don't do any bank loans. So our clients are all like non-traditional lenders. So that typically looks like a private equity that that has a direct lending arm. Um, And then uh, distressed is sort of a, a broad term that encompasses a lot of different situations. The borrower could be currently solvent, currently operating, but is just doing poorly. And so they don't have access to perhaps more traditional quote-unquote financing, which is to say that a bank doesn't view them as a sound enough investment. Um, the banks are more uh, tend to be more regulated or are more regulated. And so companies that are distressed tend to, to not have access to loans from traditional lenders like banks. And so our client will come in and will offer them a loan um, that loan will tend to be at a higher interest rate and more lender-friendly terms than you might get from the bank. And then Distress also runs again into companies that are currently entering bankruptcy um, and are looking for an out-of-court solution um, instead of going through the full bankruptcy uh, proceedings, or are currently in bankruptcy and are looking for a debt financing, which is um, a debtor in possession financing, which uh, will give the company liquidity while they're in bankruptcy, and then an exit facility, which is the uh, financing for a company exiting bankruptcy. Um, And so our our client will provide loans to a company to get them through the bankruptcy proceeding without actually having to close the company down and to liquidate assets. Um, So that's the full gamut
0: of what we're calling distressed. Got it. And then you're saying that because it comes with inherently more risk in, in offering the loan, one of the terms is that it typically includes some equity kicker piece. And Brian is more focused on that piece of it.
1: Yeah. So that's that's sort of um, the, a, a common uh, way for our clients to realize the upside. So our clients are taking on more risk in, a de- in the downside, right? This company is not doing well. And so there is inherently more risk that this investment goes south. And so we, we look for ways for our clients to mitigate that risk. And that looks like two separate things. You know, One, the terms are more lender friendly, so higher interest rates, et cetera. But also we want them to capture the upside if they're coming into a company that's doing poorly, but that company ends up turning around. We'd like to build in a way for our client to realize the benefits of that turnaround, which would mean often having some sort of equity component whereby the client will own part of the company and then be able to directly realize on whatever sort of upswing comes out of this.
0: Got it. Fascinating. And presumably, it results in in somewhat more interesting work for the attorneys involved than, let's say, a traditional company loan process where you probably don't see as many big law firms involved in, in handling the paperwork since there's probably more Sort of form contracts being signed, right? Is, is there is there a form here, or, or every every transaction tends to be pretty bespoke?
1: I, I do a lot of more regular way direct lending, which is more form based. Um, you know, you've seen it before. There are tweaks around the edges, but you're working from a form. But in the truly distressed space, they tend to be much more bespoke. So you're starting from some precedent, but you're you really have you really have more creativity in trying to draft a document that you know, is able to uh, to work for the uh, sort of nuances in this situation. So it tends to be a little bit more creative, you know, if you will, in, in figuring out how to draft documents around what is a more uh, unique bespoke situation.
0: Got it. Interesting. And, and Brian, how does that relate to the kind of work that you do? Yeah. So on the equity
2: side, um, it, it is pretty bespoke in nature. Uh, so I think there's a pretty... A, a heavy breeding ground for creativity, and that there's obviously forms you can start with that'll have the shell of what you're working with. But every situation is is pretty different, and that our, our lender here might be coming in for seventy percent of the go forward company's equity or thirty percent. So in those type of situations, we're negotiating from a different leverage point and a different point of view. Whereas as a seventy percent, it's it's basically we would our lender here would own the company. So we negotiate from a point of power where we get essentially whatever governance we want and we can ask for certain rights that we otherwise wouldn't be able to. Whereas on a 30% lender point where we would be coming in to own 30% of the company, we're asking for certain minority consent rights and things that will allow the the lender and its capacity a go forward equity holder to protect their investment and to monitor the outside of the company. Yeah, interesting. And Nell, it
0: sounds like your practice is a combination of, you said, more traditional and more distressed. Do you find yourself particularly attracted to one piece of it or the other, or what do you find interesting about each?
1: Yeah, so um, just a little background to answer that. So my last firm, um, before I joined Rope, uh, I was doing, I would say, predominantly sort of regular way uh, direct lending. Um, and so that was my area of expertise before I came to Ropes. But a big, big part of why I came to Ropes was to expand that and do um, a wider range of deals and and more um, more interesting bespoke situations. And so a big part of why I have really loved Ropes the past eight or so months that I've been here is being able to do more of the distressed. I guess what I, what I like about that is that it, it really takes a little bit more um, sticking on your feet and creativity. And it, it, I think it stimulates me intellectually a little more sometimes, just because you have to really think of creative ways and you're not just doing a sort of going through the motions of duping out a document. So I, I would say that I, I lean towards liking distress more, but I also like to mix that up and, and mix in some more standard direct lending um, just to get that balance.
0: Right. That, that makes sense. You mentioned that in your last firm, you were doing credit work already. so how did you wind up in that line of work? and then afterwards, Brian, maybe you could tell us how you wound up doing the the equity side um, of of the these distressed debt situations and in particular, I'm curious, Brian, for you, about why you wound up here and not let's say just regular way equity right, doing m and a deals or or you know traditional acquisition work.
1: I can go first. I started out at Paul Hastings uh, way back when, um, and I was doing um, syndicated financing, so the large bank deal world. Um, and I, I ended up doing that um, purely, honestly, because I happened to be seated my first year on the same floor as the Leverage Finance Group. So it was sort of a, a happy accident. And um, I moved to Schulte with a group of people from Paul Hastings, also very fortuitous. Um, and at Schulte, their bread and butter was direct lending. And so I sort of made the switch from doing more of the syndicated large cap bank world uh, financings to the more direct lending and also like alternative lender space. And I really loved it. But it was getting to a point where um, I was getting really good at it. But it was sort of the same deal um, over and over again and a a smaller group of clients. And so I was thinking ahead to what I wanted out of my career. I wanted just to go to a place that had a a broader practice, a broader uh, set of clients, and that was looking to grow that even more. And so I interviewed a bunch and ropes sort of fit the bill in all respects. You know, it, it has the fallback of having a really amazing In a traditional quote unquote finance group, but also this really exciting sub, you know, this really exciting group that was actively growing, actively broadening their client base.
0: A theme that's come up a lot here is that law students tend to worry quite a lot about how they wind up in their practice groups and how they are possibly expected to pick the right group among hundreds. And, you know, I think it's always comforting for people to hear that the right group often just finds you. Um, and I had a similar experience when I um, wound up in asset management where my summer mentor happens to be did private funds work. And so I wound up doing private funds work and I loved it and I stuck in it. So, you know, I tried other work and I didn't like it as much, but, you know, it's not like it's not like most of us go wake up one morning and just say, oh, hey, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. Let me go to law school to be <laughs> to be a finance lawyer, to be a, a private fund lawyer.
1: Yeah, I mean, particularly since I, I mean, that, my experience was at law school was litigation heavy and so I I came in not really knowing anything about corporate law you know I tried out doing litigation in my summer I I, I didn't like it so I just defaulted to corporate but I didn't have a strong sense of what that meant um so a lot of it was trial and error and I think for for law students coming in as you said like I I I, it's I think it's incredibly normal to not know exactly what you want to do and uh trial and error is fine And, and you know meeting people and Sort of organically trying out different areas is um, a, a totally fine way to do it, and I, I don't think there should be any expectation that you have to come in to your first year or even your summer with some well-defined idea of what you want to do.
0: Yeah, totally agree. Now Brian's going to tell us that um, that in college he studied nothing but equity transactions on debt, on <laughs> equity acquisitions under debt transactions, and that you know when he was in kindergarten that was his favorite book and. <laughs> Brian? He was
2: just born um, in equity. I actually minored in that, um, majored <laughs> in I, I was always drawn to the work. Um, you know, I I consider myself equally as fortunate as you both to end up where I've end up, ended up. But the path to get here was a little bit different in that I started at Fried Frank for a cup of coffee, like uh, around a year and a couple months doing straightway private equity MA work, and I just didn't find that I was loving it too much. Uh, a lot of the corporate private equity first-year work is, is traditionally uh, kind of sitting in data rooms, doing diligence, and waiting around to, to hear things. And I just would show up every day and not be super captivated with what I was doing. And for me, it got time to, to look around and take stock and kind of take ownership of my own career and I knew I didn't love what I was doing, and I needed to find somewhere where I could, if not find some place that I love to be in and love the work I was doing, at least find somewhere where I could learn and grow as a professional. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to meet with John Gill, one of the partners at Ropes, um, through a connection. And we uh, met a couple of times before I came into to interview, and it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly that Ropes was, was just a dynamic situation to, as a whole. Um, I did not know exactly what I was getting into when I came here. Um, but I, I kind of viewed it as a a way to maintain some of that corporate training that I had grown up with and transition it into a little more of a niche, a little more of a learning experience where I could kind of make it my own. It was a good growth opportunity. The group is, is pretty actively trying to grow and there was a good spot for me to get in a good kind of framework with some mid-level, some senior associates, and some partners who all had this teaching background in their blood. Um, so I, I just, I think once I realized that I didn't love m and private equity work as a starter, it, it kind of became my priority to figure out how I could take what I already had and transition that into uh, my own practice that I felt joy about coming into every day. Wow, that's pretty high praise, Joy, coming into every day. That's a good a good turn of phrase. I like
0: it. Um, do you think that it was more, um, just, just to push you a bit, did you think that it was more just the junior-level work on the regular way, PE transactions, that was not appealing to you or looking at where you are now as more of a, a mid-level, you think sort of comparing your more niche practice to the more typical M&A transactional practice, this is also still a better fit for you?
2: For me, without a doubt, a better fit. Uh, I, I am one of the uh, the lucky few who who is very happy to be here all the time. But I think looking towards the the PE kind of mid level traditional route, without having experience it myself, uh, it it seems a little form based and a little kind of it, it could get repetitive at times. Whereas here, I think I've had a really good opportunity to become both. A, a kind of a jack of all trades and a master of all trades. So I, I, I think I, my practice has pretty much run uh, kind of a broad range where I've been able to try a bunch of different things multiple times. Um, I've really been able to grow my creativity in that. I think pretty early on, I was given a lot of responsibility to to stretch my wings and to, to draft from a free form kind of knowing, learning what I had had Learned and absorbed, and make it my own thing. Um, so I, I think comparing the two, it was—I still think that this was the right situation, and this was a really good place for me to to engage with a bunch of different practice groups. Since I work pretty closely with with Nell and and the dead side of of the group, I work closely with the restructuring side of the group, and I think there's kind of a collaborative, uh, fully rounded group that I. I just didn't see myself getting in a regular private equity position.
0: I often talk, including on this podcast, about how my practice area has evolved a bit over time from doing more traditional, just straight up fundraising work on the fundraising side, where you're just where it is slightly more formulaic, uh, to doing a lot of bespoke transactions that are asset management related, spinning out asset management teams and moving all the assets at the same time or putting to form new asset managers, things like that, that are where you're sort of starting more free form and less just punching out fund 26 after fund 25, um, you know, starting with the fund 25 form. Um, but but as I as I said before, and it sounds like you were saying also, it really is to each their own, right? Some people find joy in uh, in free-form drafting on a blank piece of paper. Other people find that extremely stressful and would rather start with you know, the kind of document that's already very well-baked, but where they can think, focus on the nuance. Right? They don't have to focus on building the whole structure out because there already was a fund five. They can just focus on the fund six, or in your case, there already was a transaction that was similar to this, and they could just focus on the details as opposed to uh the type of transaction where sometimes someone might come to you and say here's a very general idea of what we want to do and then just you have to come up with what ends up being hundreds of pages of documents but what starts is basically just you and a blank piece of paper figuring it out um to some people that's stressful to some people that's an awesome opportunity to be creative and I don't think any one of them is, just, is right or wrong yeah just to be clear it is still
2: very scary every day <laughs> um, but looking back on it it, it feels rewarding
0: Right. But yeah, fear, no, definitely.
2: Just go away.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely intimidating. I didn't mean to say that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, any of us are, are you know, uh, just nothing but excited about the opportunity to uh, handle a multi-million dollar transaction with just nothing but one line of instruction. But, you know, it, it's a lot of times what I've found is, people are looking to, for you to help make a springboard for their ideas, right? They, they have a general notion of what they want the transaction to look like. They just haven't thought about the details of how the pieces fit together. And so the opportunity to think through how the pieces are going to fit together and see your work evolve. I, I'm sure there are transactions where I could pull up the final product and my original work product, and they actually don't look like they're describing the same transaction at all. Um, you're just giving people the opportunity to start thinking. Um, and there's people who, who don't like that. And what's nice, I think, I'm hearing from your side, which I know is true of my practice area, is that it sounds like there's room for both types of people um, in all the transaction spaces, right? So it's not like if you choose to be the kind of person who does equity acquisition work, for example, that you're forced into one bucket and that's it. Now you've made your choice. Too bad. You're stuck doing the same M&A transaction over and over again. You know, there's different sub-specialties within that, right, that you could wind up where you're doing what you do, which is You know, a very more specific situation with with debt involved and you know distressed companies and really interesting situations.
2: And I also do a lot of both. Where I there are a lot of times where I kind of think for myself on on some new language for something that I just can't find any any precedent for. Um, But I also am very happy if I find something on point and it it makes my life that much easier. I I'm happy to reinvent the wheel, but I don't need to if if there's an easy answer out there. So I think it's. I think one of the skills you develop as you get older is knowing when, you're, when when the time is right to use your own creativity and when the time is right to rely on the, the past precedent with, of course, the proper upgrades and checks and balances.
0: Okay, interesting. And then how does your – I know Brian in particular talked about the things he found interesting here as compared to, let's say, traditional M&A practice, but how does your practice compare to others – in terms of timelines, the, time, the client relationships that you have, the types of tasks that you work on? How does that work uh, in terms of how you see your the types of tasks you do every day, like calls, meetings, drafting, research? And honestly, for each of you, since you both have experience with slightly different practice mixes too, how do you find that your current practice is, is similar or different from those other practices in those regards?
1: I'll take those questions in part. So I think... Uh, the tasks and the timelines are very deal specific. So um, I think this is common across all corporate work, no matter, or at least on the debt side, I can't speak to equity side, but on the debt side, this is sort of a commonality among all debt lawyers where your schedule is very up and down uh, and it's still dependent. So, you know, towards the end of the deal, it's really late nights, really crazy timeline, but then you might have... You know, weeks where you're pretty slow. It's very up and down. And I think that that's consistent across any uh, area of debt practice. Um, what I have noticed that is different um, is I think because the group is so small, um, it, the staffing is very lean, um, in, it, I think in a good way. And there's a lot of partner trust in their associates. Um, I think there's no egos involved about who gets to talk to a client and who doesn't, Uh, all the partners are really, really eager for you to make those client contacts as well. And there's no sort of possessiveness over only I get to talk to the client or, you know, uh, there's no ego involved in um, the client relationship being theirs. And so they're very, very encouraging that pretty quickly that we as uh, the mid-level senior associates and even juniors get to talk directly to clients, build that relationship up, um, and I think take on as much responsibility as you as you uh, push for. Right? I think um, a lot of 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 what work you're given is dependent on what you are seeking. You know, I think if you're a third year, fourth year, who's looking to take on responsibility and and to run deals and to take on more, I think partners are incredibly excited about that and, and will give you that responsibility. Um, and so I have seen, and I, I'd be curious to hear Brian's thoughts, but I think that earlier on and perhaps in a bigger practice group earlier on, you're allowed a lot more responsibility than you might otherwise get as a mid-level and a
2: senior. There's times when you're slow. There's times when you're busy. It's, it's, it's corporate law. Like I think that's the kind of thing everyone expects. and we have the added kind of distress aspect where sometimes in in other spaces and and even on some of our other transactions, you'll see, you'll see deadlines and kind of a a client or, or a counterparty will give you a deadline of we have to get this done by Friday. And um, so that's just a little bit of added timeline coloring there. Um, In terms of uh, responsibility and client relationships, again, everything Nell said was, true. I think it's kind of, it's there for you. It's what whatever you make of it. Um, and just a couple of examples on that. My first assignment when I got to Ropes as a, a DOEI second year uh, was to draft a, a kind of fully formed stock purchase agreement for a company that was uh, in restructuring at the time. And I, before this, I had really only done like, some diligence, a couple diligence memo portions and generally uh, didn't think I... I was there yet, but the partner trusted in me. I had uh, I had very good senior associate help, and uh, it was there were some comments back on the draft, but uh, it was an overall very good process and to me pretty eye opening. Um, there's there's a lot of opportunities to talk to the clients. There are a lot of companies that come out of restructuring, and we take on we take on a role as their corporate counsel, uh, and that's a really good opportunity for the partner to kind of fade into the background and let. Me as a mid level associate, bring myself to the forefront and connect with the general counsel of the group of the company to connect with the, whoever else may be involved from either a sponsor or a new equity ownership perspective. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity there for me to kind of stretch my wings and, and do my own, my own research, my own communication, my own little niche practice group. Um, and I, I think there's still a ton of, of partner oversight and partner. Uh, education, wherever it comes up. So uh, they're they're always there and they're always on the emails and they'll, they'll jump in when they need to, but they really do trust you and they they make it a point to make sure that everything they know, you know. So another example of that is John Gill and Rob Treader, two of the, the partners on the equity side. They teach a class a class on um, distressed assets and distressed companies at NYU Law School. And I was lucky that I joined ropes before a little bit before the pandemic and they within a week of joining the firm grabbed me and said hey we're teaching this class you should come and and kind of and fit in on it and me in my head I was very concerned that they were going to make me take the final and then kick me out of the group <laughs> and that was this was their whole whole little plan to see how much I knew but uh, I mean it came time and, and Tuesday night at, at like five o'clock they would stop by my office and grab me and say, let's go, let's go to class and take the subway together. And we would I mean, sit in class and talk about it a little after. And it was just this really kind of cool experience that wasn't available to me. And my other firm is actually, I, I, I don't think, available to many associates at any firm. But it was a, a kind of behind-the-curtain look at, at at partner operations, the way they think, and just the way the group runs, uh, which is just a really, really long-winded way to say that, uh, like there's a lot of responsibility there's a lot of learning opportunities just all available to you uh especially in this group as as you choose to yeah and how did you do on the final in the end i didn't have to take it
0: i was waiting for the part where they said and now you get to grade all the finals have fun (laughs) (laughs) Um, amazing and then and can you talk to me about i know you, you mentioned how you two interact with each other can you talk to me about If and how your group interacts with other groups at the firm, I imagine you must involve tax quite heavily since basically every group at the firm involves tax quite heavily. Um, uh, Maybe the bankruptcy group or, you know, uh, the other groups at the firm that you do interact with.
1: Sure. So I think bankruptcy is probably the other group that we interact with the most, um, which was new to me coming from a space where I didn't really do at, that much, um, if any, uh, super distressed, like, you know, in or out of bankruptcy, um, work, but bankruptcy is either actively involved or very much in the background of a lot of our deals. So that's the group I would say we work with the most to the point that I think of some people in bankruptcy as basically part of our group there. They are so um, integral to so many parts of our deals. But then I, I mean, at least for me, one part that I love about doing, um, debt work is that you get to sort of quarterback a team of specialists often. I mean, our credit agreements will um, have a lot of specialist uh, areas that are covered and, and, we, and we need uh, input on. So tax, as you mentioned, is almost always uh, pretty front and center. There's environmental stuff, There's, depending on what the company does. There's employment um, matters that usually get Raise there's real estate if they own any real property, um, and so a, a big part of being a finance lawyer generally, which is true in our group too, is um, sort of being the being the quarterback. I know I use that term again, but I think it's a good it's a good metaphor or good yeah a, a good metaphor of just having to coordinate a lot of different people at the firm, um, you know, getting comments from all of them, getting input from all of them, organizing calls where everyone's on. Um, And it gets you really good, um, really opportunities to meet people in the firm that
2: you wouldn't otherwise meet. In the distress phase, when we take over companies uh, as equity holders, you encounter a lot of kind of sticky employment situations, which I I think is is pretty interesting. We'll deal a lot of the times with uh, hiring or firing CEOs. Um, There's instances where. it's in a new role for the CEO, so we're involved with a lot of the, the legal documentation with that, and then also in terms of messaging and kind of the fallout from a more uh, more corporate business-facing perspective, we're involved with that a little bit. Um, so I think there's some the, the traditional specialist involvement plus some interesting dynamics. Yeah, interesting. The other the other
0: way you fit in with the firm at large, right, is that a lot of, a lot of of the firm is focused on you know private equity funds, asset managers in general, but you know a lot of the firm is doing uh, private capital deployment in terms of um, asset acquisitions and you know credit work in terms of um, borrowing for the funds for example um and and it seems like the work you do also fits in very neatly in that space because they're the- these p e firms are the specialty lenders in these situations who are going out and, and lending you know who have raised a, some sort of distressed debt fund or something and are going out and and lending and, and acquiring um, an equity piece also. So I think just a, to paint a broader picture, really all of the groups at the firm tend to complement each other quite nicely. And then you both mentioned that you lateral from other firms. And I really liked what Brian said that, um, that he found that teaching background is in the blood of the firm. Um, and I have to say that's something that I've always found. I mean, I've talked at length in other episodes about me, what mentorship meant to me at the firm and, and how I found really amazing mentors here who've really taken, you know, as Nell said an interest in my career and been really interested in my progression and, and the like, but, uh, I don't know if you have either of you or both of you have anything you want to add about, you know, what you like about ropes, uh, the culture here,
2: what you like about the culture of your group,
0: um, mentorship, anything like that.
2: Just to start, like I, I can kind of take it from the perspective of, of our group. Um, I, I think it's just a one, a special dynamic group of people. Um, I think it's, it's one of those places where teaching is, is really in the blood and mentorship. And uh, besides from the the kind of John Gill and Rob Treader teaching at NYU aspect of it, um, we have a, a partner, Jeff Katz in our Boston office that I have um check calls with every two weeks. So we, uh, we just kind of get on the phone every, every two weeks we talk and it's, it's one of those. It's a lot of those situations with, with Jeff and with the group as a whole, where you call someone with a two-minute question and you block out 30 minutes for the rest of the conversation. Um, so that kind of stuff happens a lot. Um, another example is I was uh, dealing with a bad bout of, of COVID a couple of months ago, and was fortunate, uh, not fortunate, not fortunate enough that it trickled out to some people at the firm where. I was trying to power through it and, and be the tough guy and get all the work done, but they all were pretty quick to jump in and encourage me to take a step back. And uh, a couple that called me, I think for a month, I think it, the, the check-ins just stopped about a week ago, but they were all emailing, calling, texting for updates. They were reaching out to, to my fiance to ask her how I was doing and how we were doing. Um, so I, I think it's a really uh, a great, group of people with with a great heart and I think that was kind of once I got here that was the thing that really opened my eyes about ropes and I don't have as much of an experience with the broader ropes and gray as a whole but my experiences that I have had I found to be the same the same exact situation where I've I've really connected with people about their home lives and the things outside of work and it's a tough job in Big Law and I think that's the stuff that really makes it it makes rubs a great different place than other places that ability to connect outside of work and ability to take an interest in people's lives
1: yeah i mean just to echo all of that um i think our group is awesome uh, i uh it's a really like close-knit group and like even the partners that i don't work directly with like john gill he, he's on the equity side we've never worked together on a deal but I happened to mention at like a group happy hour that I was going up to the Catskills for a weekend and he invited my boyfriend, me and my dog to his house. So all three of us went to his house and like had coffee with his wife and saw his kids and our dogs played. And um, it was like really fun. And it, I just can't fathom having done that at any prior firm with any partner. Like that was just not a relationship that I had with, and like I had partner mentors, this, this is not, again, to disparage any of them, but just that like relationship of like actually seeing each other as human beings outside of what we do at work and um, actively encouraging us all to get to know each other in that way is something that was different from my prior firms. When they bring in associates to this group, their their hope and expectation is that you stick around and they're able to... To mentor you and have you grow in this group and with this group. Obviously, if there's something that you want to do more and that you see your future somewhere else, they're very supportive of that too. In a, in a job that can be very taxing and demanding, sometimes it's easy to feel like you're a cog in a bigger machine and that you individually don't matter. You're just kind of a, a body. <laughs> and um, I think this group actively Makes it known that that's not what you are. Like you're not just limited to your ability to build the most hours. You actually have value as an individual person, and the and the partners actually care about you individually succeeding. That was really corny, but I really do believe that.
0: I could say from that I feel the same way about my group. And as an example, I'm on paternity leave uh, right now, and my group is actually uh, record levels of busyness. And I thought for sure everyone would be annoyed that I'm going out on parental leave. Um, And I actually offered a few people, partners saying, you know, if it's more helpful, I can cut my leave short or I can stick around or I can. And they just said, you just should just do whatever is best for your family. And I was very strongly encouraged to take my leave. I found it to be very heartening. I think it directly impacts them in that there are other people doing the work that I normally do when I'm there. And they still said like, no, we view you as a person and holistically, we want you to be out. Um, And uh, to what Brian said, I'll just echo about Jeff Cast, you mentioned him. And it reminded me that when I first joined the firm as a first year, Jeff called me to his office. And I remember being very nervous. He's not in my practice group and I didn't know what he was calling me about. (laughs) I was really scared. but uh, I keep kosher, and Jeff uh, found, found out, or I guess I wear a yarmulke at work, so he noticed or whatever. And he called me in his office just to ask me, like, is there kosher food for me? How am I doing? Are they making sure that I have kosher food at every lunch that I go to? If there's ever, ever a problem, I should let him know. Um, and it was super nice. I remember being really nervous going in and then really confused going out about why he cared. Um, but he really he really did care, um, and it was really it really made an impact on me. That uh you know he he's not even in my group, and he did care to sort of reach out to me and try to make sure that i um, that I felt comfortable and and cared about me as a person, so um, I think that was a perfect person to to name call
2: yeah, and i I think that's how the group is as a whole, and I think that's how gross is as a whole where you're a real you're you're a person beyond the work you do, and if you're a good person, you'll fit in really well
0: I think one of the questions that law students are always interested in hearing is whether there are any law school classes that are particularly helpful to your practice that you're glad you took or
2: wish you took in law school. Yeah, so I, uh, I, I didn't know what I really wanted to do outside of avoid litigation as, as a lawyer coming out of law school. <laughs> um, so I think the thing most helpful and the advice that I always give people is just take classes in what you're interested in um, because I think finding things you're passionate about is a really good indicator of future success. Um, I did take an animal law class at at NYU that I thought was fun. Uh, That hasn't helped my career at all. But if you're looking for something interesting, that could could be one.
1: Yeah. So this is probably not the answer that um, you're hoping for, but I I actually don't think that there are many, if any law school classes that are directly helpful for uh, being a practicing corporate lawyer. Maybe that's different for like, if you're in litigation, but um, it's, I think law school is very litigation focused, even the corporate classes, like corporate uh, corporations is still litigation focused. So I don't necessarily know that any class was like super critical or helpful for my practicing, like practicing was what helped me learn how to practice. Um, So I, I think my advice is similar to Brian's of like, you should enjoy that you're in school for the last time and you get this opportunity to take classes that that just interest you because they're interesting I don't think (laughs) that there is any class you have to take and if you know you didn't perform your best on a class that you think would be helpful in your career that is also fine but just enjoy being in, in school and take take what interests you and I think worry less about the specifics of what you think might be better for your career and focus on what is better for you in like now and what you want to learn about
0: Great. Yeah, I, my favorite part of your answer is that you thought it was a leading question where I was trying to get you to name a specific class. But that's generally my advice, too, just to say it is that I, I don't I didn't find any I, I found maybe tax and corporate tax to be somewhat helpful because my uh, area of practice overlaps with that so heavily. But really, I'm still not the tax lawyer and there are tax lawyers
2: on everything. Um, and so really nothing that I took in particular was uh, was super helpful. Sorry to jump back in. I am chomping at the bit to avoid getting in trouble once this podcast comes out. Uh, I mentioned it before, but John Gill and Ralph Cheddar do teach a special situation at NYU Law. So if you have the chance and you're interested in the field, the perfect class to take.
1: (laughs) Well, someone is trying to get brownie points from the partners in our group by uh, (laughs) being the promoter of
0: the class. That's true. And I, I heard that Brian is willing to serve as a free uh, study guide to anyone who's looking for assistance. Any law students who are in that class who want just like, you know, a free tutor, Brian's just, just, you know, dying to offer his his help on that, I believe.
2: Is that right, Brian? I think that was what you said. Yes. And uh, you could contact me at Nell's cell phone number. (laughs) Perfect. It's on the firm website. Great. Um, So other than um,
0: taking law school classes after you're in law school, Brian, uh, what's something you like to do in
2: your spare time for fun? Um, well, I, as a man of many talents, uh, I, my goal for 2022 is uh, I'm trying to touch my toes, something I've been spending a ton of time Whoa. trying to do. Um, otherwise, I, I try to stay active when I can. So I, I uh, partake in a bunch of group exercise classes. I'm uh, living in Hoboken, so in Hoboken in the city, uh, trying new cooking recipes when I can. Um, I have a collection of very punny mugs. Um, so one of them that I have, which is not true right now, says "dolphinately drunk, and it's a picture of a dolphin with a wine glass. <laughs> Love it. So uh, Just a bunch of little things. So I'm just trying to, to find some fun when I can.
0: Love it. Um, I, I have to say, um, I can give you a little cheat. If you sit down and cross your legs, it's really easy to touch your toes. I've never heard that one before, but. Right. <laughs> and Nell,
1: how about you? Uh, well, I guess uh, different from Brian, I don't uh, pump iron in my free time. Um, but I have a dog named <laughs> Winnie. She is um, a cattle dog and a black lab mix, and so uh, my life uh, revolves around her. I basically just pay rent for her. But um, in the, in my I have a, <laughs> if I have time, I like to take her to the park, uh, to Prospect Park. Um, And she helps keep me active and keep me out outside, particularly, you know, in the pandemic when we're all stuck in our homes for so long. Um, It's great having a dog who's active because it gets me out uh, to the park on most days. Um, And yeah, I just like to find cool things to do with her and like, like cool hikes to go on with her.
0: Oh, amazing. Um, Have you lived in the city throughout the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so I actually grew up in the city, but I have been living in my apartment in Brooklyn for the whole time. Um, I mean, I've made, like, small world trips, but for the most part, I've just been in Brooklyn.
0: Wow. Have things sort of returned to normal, or it feels like a ghost land right now?
1: It's been pretty normal here for a while. Um, I mean, obviously, like, it's like a new normal, not the normal that was before this, but I think it, for the most part, it's, it's gotten back to being like normal levels of busy. People are, are going about their lives pretty normally.
2: Oh, great. Brian, where are you? Uh, I'm living in Hoboken, New Jersey. Got it. And I am a proud Long Islander and will never give that
0: up. So, so Hoboken is about as normal as Hoboken, New Jersey ever, as you're saying. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> I'm, from, I'm from the New York area originally. Okay. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Boston transplant, so, so I'm familiar with Hoboken. Thank you, Nell and Brian, for joining me and sharing your insights into the Capital Solutions and Private Credit Group and your experiences at the firm. Uh, It's really been uh, a great pleasure listening to you. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you found this to be a helpful, insightful episode. There's a specific practice group or area you'd like us to cover in a future episode. Please reach out to me directly. I'd love to hear from you. If you're a law student or recent graduate who'd like to learn more, please visit our website at www.robesgreatrecruiting.com or check us out on Instagram at hashtag RibsGrey. You can subscribe to this series wherever you typically listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Please look out for future episodes and share with your friends. Thanks again for listening and see you on the next episode.